Hey everybody, just a quick note. I'm traveling and I don't have my podcast microphone with me this week, so in the recording you'll notice that the mic quality isn't as good as it usually is. My apologies in advance. I hope it's a still enjoyable episode for you all. Thanks. I don't know about you, but in this time of lockdown and self-isolation, I miss my local coffee shop. It's not just the coffee, though the baristas there make a lovely dry cappuccino which I'll never reproduce at home. I miss the walk to the corner, the ritual of setting up my laptop at the bar against the window, and spending several hours writing. When I think about how long it might be until I can do that again, I get a little bit anxious. I crave not just the taste of the coffee, but the experience of being in that shop, and I also crave stability. Never having to again go through this pandemic, which brought all of this about. And now, even though they didn't have cappuccinos, pre-modern Buddhist philosophers did have and know about craving. In fact, they spend a lot of time considering how cravings like mine come about, how they lead to suffering, and how they think this suffering can end. Suffering can end. So I might find myself craving a particular kind of pleasure that I can't have access to right now. And that's going to generate feelings of discomfort and unease because I can't satisfy that craving for pleasure. Uh, I'm Bryce Hubner. I am a provost's associate professor of philosophy um, at Georgetown University. And my work mainly focuses on issues in the philosophy of cognitive science, but over the last five or six years, I've been getting deeper and deeper into Buddhist philosophy in particular, but also into other areas of Indian and South Asian philosophy. Professor Hubner has been focusing especially on a kind of Buddhism known as Yogacara. He's been looking at three philosophers in particular, Asanga, Vasubandhu, and Stiramati. As is often the case in Indian philosophy, dates are tricky, but Asanga lived somewhere around the 4th century Common Era, Vasubandhu somewhere around the 4th to 5th century, and Stiramati in the 6th century. These thinkers were concerned with meditative practices. The term yoga-chara means the practice of yoga, but or the practitioners of yoga, but yoga here just means discipline. And it refers to a set of particular Buddhist disciplines, not the modern movement which goes by the name of yoga. These Buddhists are concerned with mental discipline in the face of suffering. What did these Buddhists think about craving, uh, and how do you connect that to the cognitive science that you've been thinking about? First thing to say is that there's a general... Buddhist model um, of how different kinds of states give rise to or condition other kinds of states. And the key thing that is going to be relevant here is that the feeling states are the cause of various kinds of craving. Feeling states are a component of every single mental state we have, according to these Buddhists. So at every moment, our experiences have what philosophers call a valence, 
which is basically a kind of shading or tinging of experience. We experience things as neutral, positive, or negative at every moment. But those feelings become cravings when they're conditioned by ignorance, when they're conditioned by mistaken uh, and mistakenly habituated understandings of ourselves and the world we're part of. So one of the really interesting ideas that runs through the uh, early part of the Yogacara tradition is that the world we encounter and our understanding of ourself in that world is in many ways a figurative projection. It's something that is constructed through the interaction of our cognitive system and the world that we encounter. Understanding our cognitive system is the other part of what Professor Hubner does using modern tools of cognitive science. You might think that the idea that the reality we experience as a construction doesn't fit well with the study of neurons, of brain waves, and the sort of scientific process we're familiar with. But one of the main things that Professor Hubner argues is that modern cognitive science is actually missing an important aspect of human cognition. While we might think of cognition as something like a computer, our brains are thinkers like many computers, Professor Hubner says that this view, the computational model, is inadequate. There are, just to sort of take some really basic examples, there are thirsts and hungers for nutrients and for uh, water and whatever else, which are regulated by hormonal systems, by the interaction between those hormonal systems and the flow of nutrients or fluids into the gut, and by the way that those are being processed by systems that are linking the body to the brain. And if you want to understand how we're motivated to do things, you need to understand all of those kinds of interactions, not just focus on those logical operations. Gotcha. So it's something like um, we thought about neurons as if they were on-off switches or zeros and ones. And while that gets us somewhere close, we've forgotten about the, the whole package that those neurons are coming in, which in influences how those switches are turned on and off in, in different circumstances. Would that be a loose approximation? I think that's totally fair. So Yogacara Buddhist philosophers are important to Professor Hubner because they integrate our bodily situation with our emotions, with our thinking. And these are a group of philosophers who are taking up the models of psychology that have been developed within the Buddhist tradition um, at that point for uh, several hundred years and taking those as a foundation for thinking about how mind and cognition unfolds. Mm -hmm. And then anchoring that, crucially, to a notion of meditative practice. One of the most important aspects of Buddhist philosophy is the belief that we've made up a story about having some unchanging self or soul, the Atman. 
This is one of the big errors which they believe causes suffering. If we paid better attention to our internal life, they think we'd realize that no such unchanging core exists. This mistake permeates our thinking and feeling, though, and it drives our acting. We do things because they think they are good or bad for ourselves, and that if we pursue them, we'll attain some kind of stable, positive feeling. But according to these Buddhist philosophers, this is a bad habit. Once we've constructed a model of ourself in the world, the structure of those feelings as they show up on a moment-to-moment -moment basis is then transformed into something that I treat as mine, mm -hmm. something that directs my action towards ways that I expect the world to be, Mm -hmm. and that leads me to behave in ways that are often out of sync with what's happening now and are tied more deeply to my habituated patterns of expectation. Right. And so, so, and you might also think, um, let me just toss this out there. I'm the kind of person who, who sits in coffee shops. I'm the kind of person who, who works in coffee shops that there's, some sort of aspect. It's not just the sort of sensual desire for the the coffee itself. There's something also associated with those with those memories about the self that I've constructed for for you know for my experiences that um, that I'm grappling with too. Would that be fair? That's totally fair. Um, you might have incorporated into your model of the kind of thing you are and the kind of world that you inhabit that you're the kind of thing, as you nicely put it, whose being in the world, whose being is the kind of thing that sits in a coffee shop and works. Um, so why isn't it that just sort of trying to regulate and really um, uh, uh, sort of tamp down these appetites, why isn't that the solution that the Buddhists go for? Yeah, so I want to answer you in two ways. One um, from the perspective of the phenomenology and another from the perspective of the biology. So from the perspective of experience, you're not going to get rid of the feelings that are arising and structuring your engagement with the world. More importantly, those kinds of feelings can give you really valuable information about what's going on and how you should engage with the world. It's really important, again, to distinguish between feelings and cravings. While feelings won't go away, cravings are the result of habits we've gotten into over time. My feelings about coffee may never change. I'll always have the memories of certain pleasant experiences around a dry cappuccino, made just right. But Buddhists don't think I have to crave that experience or to feel suffering just because I can't make myself one of these right now. There's another kind of craving they talk about, which is important for this moment of time in spring of 2020 in the midst of a world-changing pandemic, and that's the craving for stability. Likewise, I might want things to be stable and reliable as a world that I know how to encounter. 
or I might want the world to return to the way that it was before we were experiencing things like social distancing and various kinds of lockdown. That craving for that return is a craving that the world be a particular kind of way, which is anchored to a particular kind of feeling that things should be a particular way and a particular kind of ignorance about what's possible and about what's going to be actual. Let's say I'm convinced by these Buddhists that I have some bad mental habits and this lockdown time is as good as any to work on them. Even if I start meditating and reading yoga chara texts, there's still a pandemic out there. Maybe I'll stop craving my cappuccino in the mornings, but there are more serious cravings that I could still experience, and it doesn't seem like just meditating will fix them. I crave a stable society in which medical care is available to everyone, and the governmental response to COVID-19 is driven by science and careful reflection on society's moral obligations. Can I stop that kind of craving with meditation? And I have feelings. I have feelings of sadness when I hear that a friend's father-in-law passes away from COVID just weeks after their mother-in-law also passed away. What do I do with those feelings in the face of this pandemic? What do I do with those in the face of a social structure that seems set up to bring about those feelings for a long time? So stepping back from the role of the craving, the feeling, the feeling of lack or whatever else it might happen to be, is probably something that we don't have a lot of immediate control over whether it shows up or not. What we have control over is how we react to it and how we respond to it. To the extent that we rely on assumptions about how things should be, we end up actually generating more discomfort than would be there from the not satisfying of that initial urge. This is something that doesn't show up in the classic uh, Buddhist texts, but it's something that we are all uh, very familiar with. The world we're part of can be organized and structured in ways that promote oppress oppressive and exclusionary ideologies. Where that happens, those patterns of attunement are going to be towards those kinds of worlds. And this is where I think the Yogacara philosophers give us a deep insight, because they see that the construction of the world and the construction of our identity are always tied up with one another. And what we need to work through, often through collective practices, is ways of figuring out where we've built a world that is going to promote various kinds of discomfort and where the problems lie in, it's a hard way to there's, it's hard to put this in Yogacara terms, in the structure of the world rather than in the structure of me. It seems like you might then say in our modern world uh, for the Yogacara, one focus of analysis could be this construction of ourselves as consumers in a capitalist society. And so 
you know, the idea of consuming itself is very tied to these feelings of desire uh, that you've described and the craving for sort of sensual fulfillment. Um, but that doesn't happen in a vacuum. It also has to do with the way that the world has been set up such that we expect that our desires ought to be fulfilled and society is sort of structured around that or our economy runs on it. And so you're, you might say then that an extension of the Yogacara analysis would be to look at how this sort of identity as a consumer, our experiences as these kinds of, of sort of constructed beings, how they're, as you could call it, co-constituted. They come up in, alongside of this larger system, which is not just me. It's, it's, it's sort of outside of or beyond me. Would that be fair? I think that's totally fair. Um, yeah. I don't actually have anything to add to that. So. <laughs> if you want to learn more about Yogacara philosophy, cognitive science, and how people are making connections between them, you can look at the links in the show notes on Anchor or the website. I'll be back in another two weeks with another episode. In the meantime, stay safe.